invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. It's that time of year, right? School's almost out. For some of you, it's already out. For some of you, you've still got a week. I was talking to some teachers just this morning. And uh, anytime this year you talk to teachers, they tell you that um, one of the hardest things to do the last few weeks of school is to get kids to listen. There's a big difference in uh, hearing and listening. You can be in the room where audible instruction is being given, but if you're not listening, what is it doing? It's just going in one ear and out the other. How many of you are teachers here? Any, any teachers, school administrators? All over, the, all over the room. Am I telling the truth? Is it hard this time of year? And let me tell you something to the students. Believe it or not, the teachers are excited about school ending too. Okay? You think you're excited? They're excited as well, all right? But uh, listen up, all right? And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When I was studying this passage about, you know, listening, and uh, at the end he's going to talk about dull hearers, people that have kind of can't hear anymore. I, I just had this visual image of like Sergeant Carter and uh, Gomer Pyle. Do you all remember this? What is Sergeant Carter? What do you think he's saying right there to Gomer? I can't hear you. <laughs> and of course... Gomer should have said, well, you're not listening, Sergeant. Anybody remember this show? Am I the only one? That... Thank you. I, thank you. I see those hands. Some of you, how many have never seen Gomer Powell? That's what's wrong with America right there. <laughs> you need to rent Andy Griffith and Gomer Powell. It'll teach you a lot about life, especially Andy Griffith, but I'm just saying. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, though. And here, here's the point. You're not listening. The writer of Hebrews is writing to typically, pr primarily, Jewish people around the city of Rome. Perhaps a little house church on the outskirts of Rome. And many of them that he writes to have become believers. they become Christians. They have left, really haven't left Judaism. They've just completed Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, by the way. They've just come to faith in Christ. They're now completed Jews. But some that he's writing to, and I think specifically in this passage, are those that are this close to faith in Christ. But they keep looking back. And he, he has compared Jesus to the angels. He's compared Jesus to Moses in previous chapters. He's compared Jesus to the high priest, and he's going to do that continuing here. And you and I don't quite get it on the whole high priest thing. I want to unpack some of that for you this morning so that you kind of understand why the writer of Hebrews is talking so much about the high priest and how Jesus has become the perfect and complete high priest. One whose reign never ends. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 1, and he gives some explanation. Let's look at the first few verses. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So the writer of Hebrews is, is giving them some understanding of the high priest. Listen, these were Jews he's writing to. They understood the high priest, the high priests were selected and the high priest had basically three main things that describe the high priest. First of all, they were appointed by God. 
Secondly, they were sympathetic with the people that they lived among because they were one of them. And they also offered sacrifices. That was perhaps the main function of the high priest was to offer sacrifices. And of course, we focus a lot on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice that took place there. But the high priest offered sacrifices daily. It was their job. It's what they did. Every high priest is taken from among men. I think the big question in the Jewish community would have been, who's offering sacrifices on your behalf? Because folks, it had been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, right up to the time of Christ. They were offering sacrifices. Now, I got a picture of what the high priest could have looked like. We get this from the book of Numbers. Every garment that you see him wearing is, is important. Underneath everything is this linen tunic. On top of that was a blue robe. And you see at the bottom of the robe, those are pomegranates woven out of fine fabric material. And in between each pomegranate was a bell. It's so that the people outside, when the, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, they could tell that he was still alive. Because it had happened before where people walked into the Holy of Holies that shouldn't have been back there, and they were consumed by fire. And so they could hear this. On, on top of the blue robe is this uh, ephod, or it looks like an apron. On the shoulders of the apron are stones with the names of the 12 tribes. There's a breastplate that has 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes. There's a, a hat little thing there, a turban that is also made of linen, and it had on there, Holy is the Lord. This was a garment that, you know, if you were the high priest, you walked through the streets of Jerusalem towards the temple. Folks heard you coming, and they were glad that you were coming. Why? Because you were going to be the one to represent them before God. Two, two primary offices in the Old Testament. One was the prophet. The prophet was someone who represented God to man. He was the one who said, thus saith the Lord. So the prophet was very important. The high priest was also very important because he represented men before God. He was the one allowed behind the veil into the Holy of Holies to come and pray on behalf of the people. And so he's appointed by God. He, he makes a big deal about the fact this wasn't something that you just took. In fact, if you want to go back to Numbers again, Numbers chapter 16, there's a whole chapter about this group, Korah and others, who came to Moses and said, we're going to be the high priest. And we got 250 people that are going to follow us. We're going to take over from here on. And Moses said, not a good idea. Go get your censors. <laughs> and uh, what happened to them in a nutshell, if you're going to read number 16 later today, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. And their 250 followers were killed. In fact, God told Moses, tell everybody else, get away. Get, get away from their house because everything they own and themselves are going to be swallowed up. You didn't just go to God and say, God, I'm going to become the high priest this year. It was appointed by God. And you were appointed on behalf of the people to offer gifts and sacrifices. Gifts first. The gifts were not blood offerings. The gifts could have been grain or meal offerings. It could have been money or something of that nature. It was typically given for thanksgiving or dedications. But then there were also sacrifices for sins. And that was the blood sacrifices that was for the expiation, the atonement of sin. And we certainly know that happened on Yom Kippur. It happened on the Day of Atonement. But folks, that also had to happen throughout the year. One big difference between Jesus and the high priest. A lot of big differences, but one you need to know. 
when the high priest offered sacrifices on the behalf of the people, he had to offer sacrifices on his own behalf. This was the original selfie, okay? He had to do a selfie before he could offer sacrifice for anybody else. Why? Because he was a sinner. He was chosen from among men, and he was a sinner. But because of the fact he was chosen among men, he could deal gently with the people. And Jesus is described as being the same way. Jesus was born among men himself, right? He was God Emmanuel, God among us. And that's why Jesus is said he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet without sin. He understands what the human experience is. And certainly the high priest in the Old Testament understood what people were going through. You didn't want a high priest that was so sympathetic, he just like, well, it's no big deal. You also didn't want one that said, no, I'm not offering sacrifices for that sin again because I think you've done that before. You wanted one that was sympathetic, that understood the human experience. But listen to who he offered him for. The ignorant and misguided. How would you like that to be the characteristic of you? Could you offer a sacrifice to me because I'm ignorant? But what is he saying? In the Old Testament, again, back in Numbers, it says there's offering for sin for those who commit sin unintentionally. You know what they did with people that committed sin intentionally? It's real clear in Numbers. There was no sacrifice for that. What did you do with those people? You told them to leave. You cast them outside of the camp forever. Well, just an aside note here in case you're thinking, is that still the way things work if I commit a sin intentionally? Because I'm kind of wondering, how many sins do we commit unintentionally? Aren't most of them intentional? We know better. And yet there's days that we say the wrong thing, think the wrong thing, or do the wrong thing. Well, I'm glad I'm living in a day of grace as opposed to the day of the law in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you were cast outside the camp forever. You couldn't come back. Jesus died for the ungodly. God offers mercy and grace. And so, yeah, what does that mean? That means even somebody like me that has committed sin, not, not ignorantly, willfully, there's forgiveness. Because he paid the penalty for it. He's obligated to offer sacrifices both for himself and for the people. No one takes this honor, but he receives it when he's called. So that's, that's kind of a picture of the high priest. Then let's look at what he says about Jesus. Jesus is a high priest. Christ did not glorify himself. In fact, really, he left that behind in heaven. It says that he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be clung to or grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. Jesus was born... As an infant, we don't see much about his early life. At the age of 12, apparently he went for his bar mitzvah. And his presentation at the temple, we see kind of what happens around the temple. Remember, they get back on the road and then realize they left him and he's back there talking to the teachers. We don't see it much else until about the age of 30 where he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. But he lived a, a life of flesh. He was one of us. He lived among men. But a couple of Old Testament passages that he quotes. Let me read verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I've forgotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. 
And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus didn't ascribe to the office of high priest. He was appointed to the office of high priest. It's something that God brought him to earth to do. And he quotes these two Old Testament passages, one of them from Psalms 110, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who in the world is Melchizedek? Not a lot about Melchizedek in the Scriptures. The the book of Hebrews talks about him about seven different times. In fact, in chapter 7, if you're here for that message or if you want to listen to it online, that's that's kind of what chapter 7 is unpacking Melchizedek for you. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was way before the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was kind of the, the first in a line of, priest that would be replaced on a regular basis. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He was king over the city of Salem, which is modern-day Jerusalem. All right? But he was also a priest. He lived in the time of Abraham. Abraham offered tithe, gave his tithes to Melchizedek. He was of unknown origin. And he had a priesthood that was unending. So when it, when it compares Jesus to Melchizedek, What's it saying? It's saying you're both king and priest. Your reign is unending. You're not like Aaron or not like any of the other high priests that had an end to their reign and somebody had to follow them. Why? Because once Jesus became the high priest, you didn't need another. He offered sin, sacrifice for sin once and for all. Didn't have to keep happening year after year. In the days of his flesh. What's that talking about? It's talking about the days he was on earth. For approximately 33 years. Those were the days of his flesh. And it says that he offered prayers. Both supplications and prayers. The word that he used for prayer is just a general word for prayer. But supplication was a little stronger word. In fact, it comes from the word that, that you would use to extend an olive branch. As a sign of appeal. And I think specifically this passage. He offered these prayers with loud cryings and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. I think specifically the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus died, he had that time with his disciples in the upper room. After that experience where he washed their feet, and they enjoyed the Passover meal together, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. They went out to the garden to pray. Between the Mount of Olives where the upper room was and the city of Jerusalem was a valley called the Kidron Valley. And he went out down towards that valley into a place called Gethsemane, literally an olive grove that had an olive press in it. And he prayed. You remember he left most of his disciples kind of out at the path where they could see if anything was coming. He took three of them a little further in and he said, hey, watch, keep watch with me. And he went a little further and prayed. And the description of this in the Gospels is of Jesus just before his face with God. And here's what Jesus asked. Is there any other way? What was Jesus asking for? Was Jesus afraid of dying? No. It wasn't his death that he was concerned about. It was that he hated sin. What was going to happen to Jesus the next day is the weight of the sin of the world was going to be placed on his shoulders. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus despised. The fact that God couldn't tolerate sin and for a short time turned his back on that. Because his son was dying and paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. It says that he cried out, God, is there any other way? Obviously, we know the answer. No, there was no other way. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. 
Because there is a payment, a penalty for the sin. Without that, you and I have to pay that. Jesus paid it and conquered death. And he cried out to the one who was able to save him from death, literally to save him through death. Here's what Jesus is crying out from. He was going to die, and he still did die. He just didn't stay dead. God saved him from the permanence of death. And he was heard because of his piety or his devout submission. Because what did Jesus keep saying? God, is there any other way but yet not my will but your will? This struggle of humanity with Jesus saying, Hey, God, I wish there was some other way for this, but as a, also as human, I am submitting myself to the authority of the Father. And apparently he was there for hours. But it said he learned obedience. Was Jesus not already obedient? Absolutely. But his attentive hearkening, even though he asked God, is there any other way, it came back constantly to God, not my will, but your will be done. He suffered. But he was made perfect through that. You're thinking, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus already perfect? Absolutely. What does the word perfect mean? It means complete. Jesus fulfilled his mission. Jesus' mission was to come and live a perfect life and ultimately to die on the cross. Jesus completed that. And because of that, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus was different from the high priest in that he didn't have to make sacrifice for himself first. But he's also different in that once his sacrifice was made, it was complete. It was fulfilled. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. It wasn't just his life that was finished. You know what was finished? Hundreds of years. Think about that. For hundreds of years, throughout the old, whole Old Testament, people had to offer sacrifices for their sins. And especially on the day of Yom Kippur, they had to offer sacrifice. They had to kill a, a bull or a goat. And offer the blood to satisfy the penalty of their sin. And what was God doing throughout all of those hundreds of years? He was, he was painting a picture for them. Ultimately, this is going to be done, but it's not going to be a spotless lamb that you picked out of your herd. It's going to be my spotless lamb. It's going to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem and be crucified on a cross. And yes, be dead and buried, but rise the third day. He became the perfect sacrifice, and the source of eternal salvation to those who obey Him. Again, designated by God for the order of Melchizedek. Then the last thing. Train your senses. So the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is, let's describe the high priest. How does Jesus compare to the high priest? How does he become the perfect high priest? But he starts talking about Melchizedek, and then look what he says in verse 11. Concerning him... We have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer of Hebrews kind of puts a little parenthesis right here and says, I really want to say more to you about Melchizedek, but I can't right now because you become dull of hearing. And so he's going to spend all of chapter 6 preparing them for chapter 7. And again, he didn't write chapters, but he wrote this letter that we have broken up into chapters later on. But he says, I wish I could say more right now, but I can't because you're dull of hearing. What, what has happened to these people? 
hard to explain because you become dull of hearing. The, the word dull really is two words in the Greek put together. It means no push. <laughs> Did you know l- listening is an active thing? You have to try to listen. No push. Have you ever tried to push a car, especially if you're pushing up a hill? There's like somebody's in there driving, the car won't start. Maybe you're going to try to, you know, jump start it by going over the hill and, you know, popping the clutch or something. There's four of you pushing, and you realize this dude over here is not pushing. <laughs> you're breaking your back. You're kind of spinning out on the, you know, dirt or pavement or whatever. And you can practice this this afternoon if you want to. There's some places over here that have a lot of sand. You can get stuck easy at the beach. There's a lot of people who just drive up and down the beach that have trucks with winches on them just hoping you get stuck so they have something to do. But if you're ever trying to push out, the one who's not pushing is the dull person, the sluggard. And that's exactly what the word means. It means slow of hearing. It means you're a sluggard. You're, you're, you're lazy. You're not pushing. What has happened? When people hear the gospel and they don't respond, it's like truth is constantly in their faith, face and they don't respond. You know what happens? They can't hear after a while. God's tried to reach them. God's tried to draw them to Himself. And it says they're dull of hearing. The more spiritual information you hear that you don't respond to, the more sluggish you become as a hearer. In fact, He says, you know what? You ought to be teachers by now. Why? Who's He writing to? He's writing to Jews who knew the Old Testament. And they've heard the Gospel. They've heard the good news of the New Testament. He's basically saying, you ought to be teaching this stuff. But you have somebody, you, you have a need for somebody to teach you the elementary principles, the ABCs. You remember the elementary, you remember like first grade, kindergarten, I don't know where we do this anymore, but like we teach A is for apple. Y'all got that? Ah, ah, apple. Okay, that's elementary stuff. They don't go over that a lot in high school anymore, do they? Why? Because you ought to know it. <laughs> All right. B is for what? Banana. Thank you. B is for banana. You remember learning to write cursive or print? You remember the big, look at this. You remember like the, the lines on the thing? You got this huge pencil that would rest on your shoulder that you can write with. Remember those? And you're, you're trying to learn. Does anybody even write that way anymore? You know, we, everybody prints now. Does anybody, can anybody write cursive anymore? Y'all are still learning that in school? That's good. Can people read it after you've written it? Good. All right. Uh, That's what he's talking about, though. He's saying some of you need to go back to kindergarten. Some of you, you know, we have a nursery here at the chapel, and and it's for like four years old and under. But here's what he's basically saying. Some of you are 12 years old, and you're having to go pick your parents up out of the nursery. And they're still playing with the building blocks and the little cars and making all the noises. We got some cool stuff. Y'all need to check out the nursery because it's like we got, you know, nursery has stuff they didn't have when I was a kid, man. They got like workshops in there with drills and hammers. Not the real things, just toys, okay? But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is some of you need to come out of the nursery, people. You've heard all this stuff. It's just gone in one ear and out the other. You really had not been listening actively. There's no push to your hearing. You become sluggards. And you need to go back and learn the elementary principles of the oracles of God. What's he talking about? Oracles of God. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament law that these people should have memorized as Jews. You need to go back to the basics. In fact, it's interesting. You have come to need milk. You don't come to need milk. You're born needing milk. 
It's not something you grow into. You need milk right away. And you get milk from nursing. In the New Testament, excuse me, in the, in the days here of the writer of Hebrews, he's not talking about going out of the store and buying a gallon of milk. He's talking about a mom nursing her infant child. Little girl, little boy. And he's saying, you started down the path. You started, you've, you've heard the gospel. But you haven't responded to it. And you're thinking, I need to go back and get the milk again. You've come to need milk and not solid food. It's like adults that are still nursing. You're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And folks, if you had said that to them, this was something right in their face. You're not accustomed to righteousness. They'd say, whoa, wait a minute. We're, we're offspring of Abraham. Of course we're accustomed to righteousness. No, you're not. You're not living it. They couldn't digest the deeper truths any more than a baby could digest a T-bone steak. What do we give to babies? We give them milk. Then they, they graduate into baby food. They get cereal. We have four children. I just remembered the cereal. I'm thinking Captain Crunch would have rolled over on his boat. They call this stuff. It's mush, right? Why? Because they don't have any teeth. They're kind of gumming it, doing the best they can. They get excited about it. And baby food that comes in little jars. Why is it? I don't know if they do this anymore, but everything had tapioca added to it. I don't even know what tapioca is. But it was like, you know, baby peas with tapioca. I guess that was supposed to make it taste better or something. Anybody ever tasted baby food? I know some moms here have done it. You've tasted baby food? Be honest. Raise your hand. you tasted baby food. What does it taste like? Nasty. <laughs> some of it's pretty good when they get a little older, you know. But we don't want to eat that the rest of our lives, do we? No. We want meat. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you're back nursing at your mother because you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Solid food is for the mature. You're eating the baby food stuff. And he said it's because you're not practicing to have your senses trained to discern good and evil. One of the things that happens to us as we mature is we start knowing God. We start knowing the things of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. There's a difference in knowing about somebody and really knowing somebody. God says, your senses are dull because you're not training them to discern good and evil. You don't know the difference between right and wrong anymore. You need to go back to first grade and kindergarten. What are some practical ways that we can train our senses? I've just, I've just written a few down. It's not on the screen. You can take notes. One is keep your Bible open. When you come to church, open your Bible. I think one of the disservices we do so often is we put all the words up on the screen to the Bible, and so we quit bringing our Bible to church. In order to keep your senses active, open your Bible. And I'm not just talking about that, but in your own personal quiet time. Are you opening your Bible? Some of us have taken kind of the cheap way out and just, well, I'm, just, I'm reading a devotion. A lot of times devotions don't even have Scripture attached to it. Or if it does, it's in fine print right at the bottom. Are devotions okay? Sure, read devotions, but open your Bible so that you'll know God. Be involved in church. Be involved in a church that teaches the Word of God. How will your senses become trained to understand the righteousness of God and understand who God is? You've got to hear about it. You've got to be a part of Bible study. Be a part of Sunday school or small group. 
be a part of a church that teaches the Word of God. If you're going to church where every time you leave, you're kind of going, well, that was good. I don't know where he got that from, though. It's because he's not using the Bible. Take notes. Not just on Sunday morning, but open your Bible and take notes. Write things down that God's saying to you. If you've got questions, write them down and go to somebody else, somebody you trust their relationship with Christ and say, hey, I read this passage the other day. I'm not real sure what it means. Could you help me? That's part of discipleship. Ask God to help you see exactly where He wants you to apply the Scriptures. You do that regularly? Hey, when you go to church, one of the things you be praying, pray for the preacher. But pray for yourself. God, would you help me to apply what you're teaching me through Scripture? You know what we really want in church? We want somebody to put it in a blender and spoon feed us. Kind of like a baby. We've gotten lazy as church members. We're wanting it all digested for us. You know how birds feed their young? They kind of chew it up and spit it in their mouth for them. Don't expect that out of the preacher. I, I read a quote by a, pu- a Puritan, a guy named Richard Baxter. I got a picture of him. I put the picture up there because he was from a long time ago. But check out that soul patch he's got going on. Listen to what Richard Baxter said in a book that he wrote called Directions for Profitably Hearing the Word Preached. Make it your work with diligence to apply the Word as you're hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as those who will go no further than they are carried as if by force. You have to work to do as well as the pre- you have to work to do as well as the preacher, and should all the time be as busy as he. You must open your mouths and digest it, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work in a poor and idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. I like that. That's how I close today. I think the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 is writing specifically to some people who are this close to trusting Christ. But folks, I think there's application even at the end of it for those of us who have trusted Christ. Are we growing in righteousness or are we still kind of going backwards? The, the people that he writes about as he compared the people in Rome to the people that came out of the wilderness or came through the wilderness, came out of Egypt. If you read some of what they said during their wilderness wanderings, you know, they said, hey, you've led us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. No, they, no. Egypt was not a land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt was a land of slavery and punishment where they didn't have enough. They were going to a land of milk and honey. It took 40 years to get there because they were stubborn. Same thing can be true of us, though. We keep looking back. And what he's saying to these Jews that have gotten this close is to say, hey, step over into faith in Jesus Christ. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest that you followed all of your life. Grow up. But I would say the same thing to us who are believers. Are we active learners? Are we students? Are we still kind of just drinking milk and eating spiritual baby food? Or are we learning to feed ourselves? I ate dinner last night. My mom didn't have to come up from Macon, Georgia to cut it up for me and put it in my mouth. (laughs) The same thing needs to be true about us spiritually. That the more we grow, the more we're learning to feed ourselves and we're nourished on the Word of God. Is that true of you? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that as we begin our Christian life, we we start with milk. You don't throw a T-bone at us and say, here, eat that. 
there's a reason we start there is because that's where infants start. We need that initially. But Lord, some of us could be believers for 10 or 20 years and we're still nursing. We need to get our thumb out of our mouth. God, help us to grow up. God, if there's somebody here today that's just that close to trusting you as their Lord and Savior, would today be the day of their salvation? Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen.